I was, uh, I was telling the first service that a sermon like this, probably 15, 20 years ago, I would have given some kind of qualification beforehand to kind of warn you what was up ahead. But you know, after being uh, a pastor now for nearly 30 years, now you just give it, let it land where it lands, and you do with it what you want. It's my job to cut it straight. It's my job to take the Word of God as it is, not water it down, not embellish it, just give it as it is, and let the Holy Spirit use that in people's lives. So that's what we're going to count on today. Father, we come before you and acknowledge that your Spirit is inside each and every Christian. We need your touch upon our lives. We acknowledge that we sin. We acknowledge that we mess up. We acknowledge that we don't know everything there is to know about the Christian life. We acknowledge that here at Christ Community Church, we have issues, problems. We come before you, Lord, not as people who've got it all together. And so we're, we're in need of you. We're in need of your word to give us direction. We're in need of the fellowship that you provide us. We're in need of Christ daily. Work in us as only you can. Apply your word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I think you'll agree with me that confrontation is not easy and probably not enjoyable. I mean, when somebody's life needs a dose of reality, most people avoid talking about those kinds of things with other people, right? And if you like confronting other people, you're also probably the kind of guy who likes sumo wrestling and playing rugby with kindergartners or something, too. Confrontation is rarely met with acceptance. That's the truth of it. It's why we try to avoid it. <laughs> because normally it creates more conflict. People get upset, right? I read a letter this week from Abraham Lincoln to one of his relatives who was asking for money. And it wasn't the first time that this guy was asking for money, and Lincoln had always provided it until now. And basically, in the letter that Lincoln wrote back, he essentially said, no, not this time, get a job. In fact, he added, in fact, you have a character defect. And he then proceeded to tell him what the defect was in his unwillingness to work to get money. Boom, shakalaka <laughs> was at the end of the note, all right? That is not the way to win friends or influence people, according to Dale Carnegie. Now, if you've ever been involved in an intervention, you know, where you have a multiplicity of people who gather together and pointedly tell somebody what's going on in their life, you know those aren't fun either. We approach these things with fear and trepidation. It's very nerve-wracking at any level. This is why I think Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 is all the more amazing. He's certainly confronting these people. The Jewish consul, this is like the Supreme Court of the Jews who can't stand that the early church is now sprouting, 
growing, and they point out Stephen for, you know, being basically going against the Jews, against the temple, against Moses. It was a false charge, but they bring him before these authorities, and he's given an opportunity to speak. He doesn't have a lawyer to back him up. He doesn't have a a bevy of witnesses to support that everything he's saying is true. He was confronting a group of religious people who prided themselves to be keepers of the law, and he's telling them, you are guilty and you are hypocrites. And he did this, by the way, not having a lawyer, not having all the witnesses, but he did this being filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we began a section in this sermon for Stephen was using Moses as an example of how Israel, or he calls them our fathers, our patriarchs, rejected the messengers that God has sent to you. And by implication, they're also rejecting the messengers of that day in the first century in the apostles and in Jesus. But in this message, in this section, I mean, he is putting his foot to the pedal, and he's not letting up on the gas, right? This is what we read in Acts chapter 7, verses 30 through 34. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. I want you to notice all the kinds of activity that Stephen is pointing to here. There's an angel that appears to Moses. God sends a flame to a bush. God speaks to Moses. Moses trembles at the voice of God. God speaks again to Moses and tells him to take off his sandals because this is a place where God has spoken This is a place where God has worked. It's holy ground. And then God tells Moses that he, Moses, is going to deliver Egypt. We're going to deliver his people from Egypt. All this reminds the audience that Stephen is speaking to there in the first century that God was working outside of Israel. Mount Sinai was not located in Israel. Mount Sinai was located in Egypt. God spoke to Moses outside Israel. Some of the most revered activity that the Jews would recognize were important to their history occurred outside of Israel. And not only does this truth 
resonate with those people who heard this message originally in Acts 7. But I think there's plenty of inference for us today. There is no need for believers in Jesus Christ to make a pilgrimage to so-called holy places or events which are said to have us experience the presence of God, to use today's nomenclature in, within Christianity, the presence of God in greater measure. I mean, does one have to go to Mecca to pray? Does one have to go to a priest to confess sin? Does one have to go to a prayer meeting to meet God? Does one have to be in a revival to feel God's presence? No, it's all those. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in what? In trouble. That means God's in the midst of what? Trouble. When we need him at all times. He's present whether we're in a trial or out of a trial, in trouble, out of trouble. We can call on him at any time, in any place. In fact, we're encouraged in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, we cannot obligate God to answer us by exceedingly long prayers or loud prayers or huge offerings or by traveling to some other location. And yet many Christians still think this way. They're, they're beguiled by smoke and mirrors, by claims of some you know, special presence of God here in this meeting or when we do this. And equating God's presence or, or blessing with just money or buildings or crowds. But the fact is, now think of this. There is no time in the Christian's life, where God is not present. There is no time in our life for a, for a believer when God is not there. That's the fact of it. Sometimes we may feel him more. Sometimes we may be more conscious of his presence. And sometimes we might go to an event that helps us to think of that, but it doesn't change the fact that God is with us and his presence is there wherever we're at and whatever we're doing. And yet, our minds are prone to wander. We forget about it. And we may not feel the presence of God. We, we try to elicit a certain feeling. You can't conjure it up, so therefore you surmise God must not be here. But it never changes the fact that God's presence is in the valley or in the high places. And now Stephen starts to summarize his extended section about Moses, and he hammers the point. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt 
and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses. I mean, he just keeps hammering. This is the guy, all these supernatural things, and you rejected him. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers uh, uh, refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God called Moses as one who would both save his people from Egypt and he would lead them to the promised land. And by the way, I think the promised land is not a metaphor for heaven. The promised land is, I think, a metaphor for what we receive when we honor God with our lives. Not every Israelite, including Moses, made it to the promised land. Does that mean Moses didn't make it into heaven? Of course not. The promised land is a metaphor for the blessing and the reward that comes to those who live a life in obedience to God, which implies not everybody is going to live such a life who call themselves Christian. What Stephen is saying here is that an angel spoke to Moses. Moses performed signs and wonders. God spoke to him directly. There was no doubt that Moses was the man to lead Israel. And yet Stephen says, our own people, our patriarchs, our forefathers rejected Moses. And they turned to idols. Our own people preferred a pagan land, a pagan culture, that means without God, a pagan worship, and forcibly and decidedly rejected God's messengers in favor of deaf and dumb idols. Do you forget, it's as if Stephen is asking this, do you forget what God did for that kind of resistance and rebellion? Do you forget how God extended our captivity because we refused to listen to God and his messengers? Our fathers sacrificed to idols. They worshiped Moloch and Raphan. And Moloch was an astrological god, probably centered around Venus. And Raphan appears to be an Assyrian designation for Saturn. You're worshiping the planets. And not only that, when they sacrificed to these idols, you know what they did? Acts 7 reminds us. They rejoiced in the idols. 
These were God's people. And they gloried in their rebellion. They paraded their rebellion in the streets. There was no shame for the blatant rebellion. And God sent his people into exile for their rebellion and sin. And Stephen ends this chapter with an exclamation point. We're not going to get into it today, but basically it's this. Do you really think then that he's not going to deal with you when you murdered the Messiah? Just as rejection of Moses led to false worship and constant breaking of the law, so continued rejection of Jesus as the prophet like Moses, that's going to mean the Jews are going to forever be floundering in false worship and false piety. And I think we could make an application to today. For Christians who reject Christ in their daily lives by not going to him daily means we're going to go elsewhere to get our needs met, to find approval, to get love, to feel secure. And like Israel, Christians today are going to reject Christ in their daily lives. Oh, you know, name him, name him as a Lord and Savior. Go to church, but I'm saying then forget about him throughout the rest of the week. Refuse to go to Christ and then blame God for not being close. Then blame God for, you know, not answering their prayers. We have different kind of idols. I mean, we seek approval and love and respect from a spouse and make an idol of them by trying to get them to do what only God can provide. Or we make idols out of things on the earth like money, consuming more things. We hope that that will fill our hearts. I mean, we don't We don't throw all of our metal into a molten pot and create our idols like that, like the Israelites. Rather, we gather together our possessions and our relationships, and we throw that together to try to satisfy self. And then God asked, like he asked the Israelites, did you bring me a sacrifice of a life dedicated to me? Did you ever think that the reason that your heart is still searching in the wilderness is because you took up the tent of another God? Verse 42 describes how God handled the idol worship in the wilderness. We've seen this kind of verbiage before. It says that God gave them over to their own desires. Gave them over. The same verbiage is used in Romans 1, 24 through 28, where God gives people over to basically their own desires to feel the full consequences of their rebellion. And maybe that's the most fearful judgment of all, that God lets the sin take its destructive course in our lives. I mean, Satan baits the hook with whatever the temptation for sin is, We bite, and God lets the line go as far as it'll take us. I mean, it might be be the person who consumes stuff, 
finds hope in the investments and the cars and the houses and years of this only to find out that they were happier when they were making an hourly wage than when they had millions. And maybe the spouse who's having an affair and only finds out later when it's too late how foolish it is to lose a family over a fling. I mean, our wilderness wanderings are going to take us to dark places. It takes a while to win the trust back of those we love when we simply satisfy our flesh. The consequences are all the wasted years we spent consuming, looking for that which we never acquired. Something to fill us on the inside. You see, it's not so much, you know, I could sit here and talk about the 10 things we need to avoid the most, you know, what these sins are. It's not so much the behavior. And I love what the passage says here. It was their hearts. It started with their hearts that they desired Egypt. And it's the same for us. Sin starts in our hearts with our independence. We think to ourselves that God cannot be trusted with our needs. It starts with the lie that Christ is not enough. And such sin gets exacerbated when we we blame God for not satisfying our pleasures while we're in the rebellion. And when we're in such a state, you know what we think? We think not only... Will we not experience the consequences, but we don't deserve it at all? We think we can sin and not pay a price. This is, I'm talking about Christians here, okay? That's why we have a passage given to Christians in Galatians 6 that I think is a wonderful companion piece to what's going on here in Acts 7. It says, do not be deceived, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul there is speaking of the flesh and the The flesh is associated with all of our desires to live independent of God, outside of God's design. And see, when this kind of deception is is set up to us, it's presented to us, we're, we're told that we can get our needs met, our personal needs met our way. And our flesh will do everything to to justify that. I mean, we hear things like it could be from the culture could just be from our own heads of things that we've said or whatever. I have to be true to myself, right? I mean, God doesn't want me to be unhappy, right? Well, just think about that. If God doesn't want you to be unhappy, then God would never want you to repent. Because repentance is sorrowful. God does not desire that every moment be a happy moment. 
It sounds like a real downer right now, doesn't it? <laughs> what God does give us is joy, joy that can be had in any situation. I was talking, for instance, with a, uh, an individual yesterday, called from out of state, uh, known him for years, telling me a story of a dark period in his life, walking away from God, relational issues, uh, delving into sin, what they were, it doesn't matter at this point. But he said now, and, and actually his, his life is not cleaned up in the sense that he's still dealing with a lot of circumstances. I mean, things are really screwed up in his life. But he says, now I've given my heart to Christ in, in, in a full sense. He's been a Christian, but he's walked away. And he said, I, I've once again returned knowing that Christ is my Lord. And I'm trying to live that. And he said, what's amazing is I have hope that I didn't have before. I have this sense of relief. And, and what we were recognizing is that his life is still a mess. But he, he sees light now. He has hope. And I believe God has put that in his heart. And that's what happens when we, when we put our focus upon the Lord. Even though we're still in a mess. So not every feeling is a happy feeling. Not every circumstance is going to work in our favor. But yet our culture tells us, I deserve to be happy now, and I'm going to, you know, because I feel bad now, i got to do whatever I can to feel better about myself, whether it's eat, porn, drink, drugs, sex. I'm going to do whatever to make myself feel better. See, the, the, the flesh makes promises it cannot deliver. It promises love, acceptance, approval, respect, blah, blah, blah. But we're like that little hamster on the wheel. We'll just keep running and running and running, searching for it, trying to find it, and we never can get enough. And when in that state, we would rather accept a pleasant little lie than to face the hard truth. Tell me anything that makes me feel better about me. Tell me anything that makes me feel better about my marriage, about my kids. Counseling, preaching, it all has to make me feel better. That's the mindset. It doesn't really matter whether it aligns with truth or not. I just want to have better feelings. 2 Timothy 4 says this, for the time will come, I think we're in that time, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, purposely to believe a lie, turn aside to myths. And that's not the worst of it. We will deceive ourselves into thinking that we are pleasing God when we mock him. That's the deception of it all. And this was really the way of Stephen's audience. I mean, Stephen is talking to a group of religious leaders who put upon other people all kinds of man-made rules that in essence pushed people away from God. And see, our thinking, no matter how Christianized, sanitized you try to make it, when it's independent in the flesh, not truly humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging our sin, not truly allowing his grace to wash us, 
not accepting his word as it is, our flesh can be independent with Christian terms, with Christian music, with so-called Christian preaching, just tell me things that make me feel better. And by the way, add a Bible verse at the end of it, please. I mean, what we do, though, is that we'll put, uh, you know, compare ourselves with people that are always worse than us, right? We kind of move the target. And that way we can prop ourselves up as well. At least I'm better than that, right? So I must be pleasing God. When we're in that kind of state, there's little room for humility, little room for true repentance. Why is that? Because that stuff makes me feel bad. I don't want to feel bad. Please give me another ho-ho or ding-dong right now, all right? I feel bad. Listen, my dear friends, we are all subject to this. All of us. That's what sin is. That's what the flesh does. It lies to us. I don't come to you with condemnation. I come to you as a fellow traveler on this road who also struggles with the flesh. But we're just trying to understand how it works in our lives, how it presents itself to us, how it lies to us. We cannot proceed as if we can hoodwink God or fool God. Our God is the fearful Yahweh of the Old and New Testaments. Let us not think that somehow God has changed his standard of holiness from the Old and New Testament. Let us not think we can just excise the Old Testament or excise parts of the Old Testament out of the Bible so that we're not confronted with uncomfortable stories where God dealt with sin. In reality, God is not to be trifled with. And no one is ever going to stand before him at judgment, and we're all going to have to stand before God in judgment as a Christian, not for heaven and hell, but for our good works and every word that we've had to say. No one's ever going to stand before God in judgment and say, I got away with it. No one's ever going to say, you know what? I was able to use everything around me for my benefit. None of us are going to ever be able to point the finger at an almighty God and say, you failed me. You weren't sovereign. All of those excuses are going to fall. And here's some New Testament truth. Oh, that you could find it in the Old Testament and just brush it away. But no, you can't. Here it is in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And later in the same passage, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God, are we reading this right? For our God is a consuming fire. That's not talking about hell. That's talking about God's judgment of us. 
because Paul also wrote in Corinthians that we have many things that we present to people that, you know, we think we can fool people that our lives are better than they really are. We can fool people that, you know, us and God, we're like this when maybe, you know, we're hiding away with some secret sin and, and walking in rebellion with God in our heart. It says those kinds of works are going to burn up like hay and stubble. The only thing that's going to last on that judgment day when we stand before Christ are those things that have been infused by Christ in us, motivated out of love, out of service to God. God knows every arrogant, prideful act that I do. I've told you this before. Now, I don't want to be, but I could be a very arrogant, hypocritical person before you. I mean, that possibility exists, right? I could stand up here and sound in a way that sounds really holy. I could come up here, raise my hands. Oh, man, Kevin, he must be really close to God. But you cannot judge me based on my intonation or my body movements, but God will be able to judge me for what's in my heart and what my thoughts are. And that's why James says, teachers shall incur a stricter judgment because woe unto me if I come before you with, you know, some kind of self-image problem where I'm, you know, having to use you to somehow fill me up or utilize the church for an image. I mean, that stuff, that stuff is just sin. It's flesh. God's not going to reward any of that. Doesn't matter what size the church is. I'd get no credit for any of that when my life, my heart, is independent from God. Again, read the Bible. Sing Christian songs. Sounds great. And it can be just as fleshly as the atheist. Where's our heart in all of this? This God is a consuming fire. He knows all, sees all, and will judge each and every believer. So the person who's secretly hiding bitterness for unforgiveness, they're going to reap what they sow. The person who thinks that they can secretly dabble in pornography will reap what they sow. The person who's stealing from their employer in, in time and money, they will reap what they sow. Ernest Hemingway became famous for snubbing his nose at the moral absolutes of God. He declared his own life proved a person could do anything they wanted without paying the consequences. And like many others before and after him, he thought the ideas of the Bible were antiquated and outdated, completely useless to modern man, an obstacle to our pleasure and self-fulfillment. And in a mocking parody of the Lord's Prayer, Hemingway wrote, Arnada, Spanish for nothing, Arnada, who art in nada, are nothing, who art in nothing. However, the, the end of Hemingway's life proved the folly of mocking God. That, that debauched life led him into complete despair, and hopelessness to the point that he took a double-barreled shotgun to his mouth and pulled the trigger. 
And the plight was similar to other famous authors like Sinclair Lewis or Oscar Wilde. They too openly attacked the divine moral order, thumbing their nose at God, mocking his word. And listen, whether we pay for it on this earth or later, the fact is we're all going to have to pay up. Lewis died an alcoholic in a third-rate clinic in Italy, and Wilde ended up imprisoned in shame and disgrace. Near the end of his life, Wilde wrote, forgot somewhere along the line that what you are in secret will someday cry aloud from the housetop. My brothers and sisters, we have a choice as believers in Jesus Christ. We are given immense riches in every way possible. Hearing the word of God openly and freely Let us take every opportunity to draw near to God, to draw near in deep fellowship with a clean conscience and enjoy his presence. It doesn't mean I don't sin. It means that I am quick to confess and repent because I know that grace is available. So I don't want the time to be extended to where I know I'm in the wrong and I continue in that rebellion. I confess and I repent and I restore the fellowship with my loved ones around me and especially with my God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, and all God's people said, let's pray.